All right, y'all, we're back. We're back. We're back. We have uh, an amazing guest uh, from the UK, and I do love a good. <laughs> I love a good. How would I say that? UKing and British, uh, British works um, accent. They're fucking phenomenal. I just, I just, I truly do appreciate it. Uh, the content obviously is far better than the accent, but the accent always adds a. Uh, I just love the accent. I don't know if it's all the English blood I have in me as a Kingsbury, um, which is the the most prominent, um, for better or worse. And um, I think for better, I do appreciate the ancestry. But this is dope. Um, Chris Williamson just moved here from the UK. He talks about life growing up and um, really connects the dots to the person that he's become. He, I think, is one of the first full-time podcasters I've had on. Most people that I've had on who have their own podcast have uh, a company or something else that they're doing. They're juggling more than one thing. Um, but it's always curious to me, like people who do the podcast full fucking time, like what that takes, what that level of commitment is. He releases three episodes a week. There was a time when I was at On It and briefly after where I ran two podcasts a week. Um, that's when we were top two out of the three years. We were top 10 in health and wellness or health and fitness rather as a subcategory. And that was dope, but it took a lot of energy. And I learned a lot, but it took a lot of energy. And for me to operate as a coach in fit for service and, um, you know, be a dad, uh, it just it ended up taking up too much bandwidth. Chris is doing that thing. And he's doing that thing really fucking well, really well. We were, we were slated to podcast um, this weekend and uh, had to move it sooner than that. And my plan, like I do with most podcasters, is to dive into all of the, my favorite guests that they've had on the show to pick out good topics. But what was great and masterful of Chris is he sent me a list of three minute blogs um, that he had written recently on, on several different topics of conversation that have really to do with uh, upgrading one's personal life and the psyche of man. And, and they, they were mind blowing because not only did they allow me to peer into um, some really good topics for conversation, which we deep dive into on this podcast, but it showed me where Chris is at, not just in what he's learned from his podcast guests, many of the greats. I mean, he's had, he mentions them on the show because uh, I draw it out of him. It's not like he's trying to name drop, but he's had Jordan Peterson on twice. Uh, he's homies with Douglas Murray, uh, one of my favorite authors who wrote The Madness of Crowds and a laundry list of other great and phenomenal thinkers in the world. And um, Chris is that too. Chris Williamson is a great and phenomenal thinker. And I'm, I'm so fucking thrilled. This guy just moved to Austin. Um, we've seen each other training it on it. I think Aaron Alexander, our buddy and uh, a fellow podcaster had introduced the two of us, but he's just an amazing dude. And I, and I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I brought him out to the farm in Lockhart, showed him everything that we're getting into. And we talked, um, I mean, we talked about a lot that, that didn't get into the podcast that we easily could have another podcast about. And I look forward to that. Yeah. He's the shit. <laughs> this is a great podcast. That's it for my intro. Um, be sure to check out the show notes. I did link to uh, a lot of his material from his website. And they're, they're very, very quick. They're like, I think they, three minutes is in the title. Like it only takes you a few minutes to just read through. Um, but as I stated, you know, it, it gave us the, the topic for this conversation. And, and I give my opinions on certain pieces of these uh, topics. But also... Um, it's a fantastic way to learn because it doesn't take, it's not a big ask. I mean, I have a lot of people send me information, books, articles, blogs, podcasts. Some of this stuff is like a, it's a commitment. It's like, Oh shit. Uh, you just asked me to commit 26 hours on audible. Like that's a big fucking deal. It better be worth my time. Um, 
And it not only, not always is worth my time. Um, so anywho, this is worth your time. Not only this podcast, but, uh, Chris's blog, his podcast, uh, which is linked in the show notes and, and we've linked his favorite episode. I think it was the second one, most recent one he did with Jordan Peterson, but great, great stuff here. There are a number of ways you can support this show. First and foremost, share it with friends. That's easier to do than leaving a review. Sometimes leaving a review is a pain in the ass. Although you can just click the five-star rating if you love it. Um, share it with your friends and let that spread that way. I like that. Word of mouth, um, link to link with, with people is pretty damn easy in a small group chat. I think we all have some group on Signal or iChat or whatever the thing is, WhatsApp. You can just toss it in there and, and let people run with it if they want. And also support these sponsors. These sponsors make a huge difference, not only in making the show possible financially, but also in making a difference in your life. I mean, I've hand-selected every single one of these. Every one of these sponsors will make a difference in your life, either through convenience of getting really high-end food in your body or um, by helping you achieve better levels of sleep and better levels of focus. And, and honestly, the, the, the lineup that we have right now for this show speaks exactly to what I'm talking about. I've had... Um, James Schmachtenberger on this podcast, who is a brilliant thinker. He started the Neurohacker Collective um, alongside his brother, Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's been a guest on Aubrey Marcus's podcast and many others, alongside Jamie Wheel, who's been a guest on this podcast, Dr. Dan Stickler, and, and many of the people who I hold with the highest regard. Um, they, they are phenomenal, phenomenal thinkers. And really, one of the things that James was trying to create was um, the ability to get more out of each day. You know, so nootropics are substances that support focus, memory, mood, and general mental performance. But for years, the only enhancements I experienced for my mental performance were ones that came at the expense of balanced emotional presence. And I value that just as much. But I recently tried a nootropic formula that supports mental sharpness and emotional presence that I want in my daily experience. If you want to know what healthy mental enhancement can and should feel like, and you want to support optimal brain health at the same time, you need to try Qualia Mind. I personally know their CEO, James Schmachtenberger, who's been a guest on this podcast, and his science team at Neurohacker Collective formulated Qualia Mind specifically to provide a more holistic, naturopathic approach for supporting brain health and mental performance. Qualia Mind's 28 ingredients are not only backed by neurology research, but they're also blended specifically to complement each other's role in supporting optimal brain nutrition. Instead of overriding neuroregulation or spiking one facet of mental performance at the expense of another, Qualia Mind provides broad-spectrum nutritional support for the best mindset I've felt in years. As the husband of an amazing wife, Natasha Kingsbury, and the dad to a six-year-old son and daughter who's about to turn two, Qualia Mind has been so valuable for my ability to maximize work productivity while still showing up for my family with the emotional presence they deserve. If you haven't heard James Schmachtenberger's podcast, it's episode number 235. It's well worth your time. He created the Neurohacker Collective Science Team to value a more holistic view of human physiology and put overall health support for the human brain ahead of any short-sighted effect. It's a lot harder to formulate nutritional products that way, which is why I want to give a product like Qualia Mind the support that I can, because it has to be experienced to be appreciated. To try Qualia Mind, go to neurohacker.com where a month's supply of Qualia Mind is currently up to 50% off. <laughs> it's 50% off. Enter code KKP at checkout for an additional 15% off. I'm going to say that once again. It's vegan, it's non-GMO, gluten-free, and backed with a 100-day money-back guarantee. That is N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com to try Qualia Mind risk-free for 100 days 
and use code KKP for an extra 15% off, currently up to 50% off. So you want to check that out. These guys are phenomenal. Love James uh, and, and his work with Neurohacker. We're also brought to you by Organifi, organifi.com slash KKP. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high-quality ingredients and less than three grams of sugar. This is huge for anybody that's been in the um, juicing game. I remember watching the documentary Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, and I went on a 21-day juice fast, and I started doing a whole bunch of shit. And, and I always felt pretty good, but I, there was something that was kind of off, and, and I, I got pretty skinny fat from not having enough protein and having really accessible sugars unlocked from carrots and um, apples and different things. If I wanted to make it taste good, it usually came in an impact to my metabolic health. And that's a problem because they're, you know, unlocking uh, critical nutrients through juicing can be really good. But the CEO of Organifi has been on this podcast, Drew Cannoli, he found the same thing. He found problems with the juicing game. Uh, first and foremost, it's not convenient at all. You don't want to chop. You don't want to shop. You don't want to have to clean everything afterwards. And you don't have to drink it so quickly before it goes bad. Um, he really was looking for a way to, to help people through convenience with adding amazing superfoods to their diet on a regular basis. And he's done that a number of ways. Um, it is more than a superfood company. It is a lifestyle with roots and transformational coaching. They discovered the power of mindset and community in creating sustainable change. And I love what these guys are about. I've, I've given talks to their company, Organifi. They are phenomenal people. I'm going to have Drew back on this podcast at some point this year in 2022. But they've made it convenient to eat and round out your diet with very functional things, right? So the green juice is an amazing, amazing uh, product that has 600 milligrams of ashwagandha, which is sold in supplement form by itself. We've, uh, when I was at Onnit, I was looking to add it to certain products that we had in our product line to beef them up and make it better. This is in that. And it's a whopper. It's a large dose. They have moringa leaves in the green juice. And they have several other key superfood ingredients and it tastes great. <laughs> My kids drink this. You can't understand how important that is. It tastes, it really tastes good. And it's something that, that I don't have to beg them to, to consume. It's something that they're willing to consume and it can balance you. One of the beautiful things about ashwagandha is that as an adaptogenic Ayurvedic herb, it balances the body. It can, it can reduce cortisol at the right moment when you want to relax at night. Um, if you take it first thing in the morning, it's not going to make you tired by eliminating cortisol. That's not what adaptogen does, but it does have the ability to influence cortisol in positive ways, which can lead to just feeling your best. And uh, the greens is an excellent way to add greens that you may or may not be eating. My kids don't like eating green stuff outside of broccolini and asparagus, which I'm super grateful for. Um, they don't get a lot of greens in their diet. And this is one of the ways we round that out. The Organifi Red is awesome. It's an amazing pre-workout, and uh, it also helps in the bedroom. As Drew Canoli stated on Paul Chuck's podcast, uh, I have tried that out, and I can attest to that. <laughs> I, can, I can say it is phenomenal pre-workout, no matter if your workout's in the gym or the bedroom. Um, the stuff tastes phenomenal. It is an excellent way to curb carb cravings. So if you want something sweet and tart, have the Organifi Red Juice, and that will knock out your craving for something that's shitty that you shouldn't be eating. And it's an excellent way that we can take control back over our lives uh, by putting good stuff into our body. And it also has mushrooms like cordyceps sinensis, which have been shown to activate the mitochondria in the body at giving you a more energetic um, workout. So you get to go harder and longer in the gym or the bedroom for that matter, thanks to cordyceps and a number of other really good products that they put all into one ready-to-drink uh, powder, Organifi Red Juice. Check it all out, Organifi.com slash KKP and use code KKP for 20% off everything in there. That's 
O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash KKP. And don't forget KKP at checkout. You're going to get 20% off. Another favorite that I have here is paleovalley.com. Their beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Many on the market claim grass-fed, but they're actually finished on grains. They use beef sourced from small domestic farms right here in the United States. They use real organic spices to flavor their beef sticks versus conventional spices, usually sprayed with pesticides or natural flavors often made from GMO corn. They ferment their sticks, which creates naturally occurring probiotics, which are great for gut health. Remember, this is a very important thing when we're talking about dehydrated or preserved food. If it contains probiotics, that means it's going to assist it on the way through the body as opposed to, you know, your, your, your crap beef jerky at uh, burpees or whatever the, the, your favorite gas station is, which is going to cause gastrointestinal issues. It's going to take more water out of your intestines to process that and rehydrate it. And it's going to make it a little bit harder to come out. And one of the best rules of thumb, as Paul Check talks about in How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, is the poop lineup, where he has a giant uh, turd with a cop hat on, and he's looking at all the villain poops up on the cop wall. And um, he, he basically explains, like, if, if your shit looks like this, you should eat more of this. If it looks like that, you should eat more of the, or, or less of this thing, right? That's our first intel on what's going on inside our body. If we don't have well-formed, not-stinky shit, then odds are it's a problem. And there is no dehydrated food that I have from a gas station that makes me feel good when I go number two. That said, Paleo Valley beef sticks do make me feel good. And it's likely a function of the fact that they're minimally dehydrated. They have uh, a juiciness to them. And they have this fermentation process, which puts probiotics in there. It is great for gut health. It's good for the poop lineup. It's good for all things digestion. And these are loaded with a number of other key ingredients, omega-3 fatty acids, fat-soluble vitamins and minerals, glutathione, CLA, conjugated linoleic acid was a bodybuilding fat that they first discovered as some, a fat that burned fat. So it actually helps you lose weight or, or lose fat rather for that matter. Bioavailable protein. They're also keto-friendly and they're a great protein-rich snack to use on the grab and go. I've brought them with me on road trips, in an RV, in the truck, hunting trips. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm traveling anywhere to the office even. They're in my backpack. Sometimes I need something quick and easy and on the go. And I absolutely love their products. Uh, the jalapeno is my absolute favorite. There's, there's a number of them. The garlic sausage is really good. Summer sausage is really good. And they're all there. Check it out. 15% off. Paleovalley.com. Discount code Kyle for 15% off. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. Discount code Kyle for 15% off. And last but not least, we're brought to you by Sovereignty.co. Now, Sovereignty has been a longtime sponsor and they're doing a site-wide discount of up to 25% off when you use the code KKP. That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y.co. You're going to use code KKP, and you're going to get 25% off. Um, I have been a fan of these guys for a long time, and I, and I want to do a deep dive here on their sleep product, Dream Plus, because Dream Plus is something that works incredibly well, and no matter what state of consciousness you're in. Now, I, I say that because Sometimes when I have an altered state of consciousness, it is very hard to sleep after that. Dream Plus was able to knock me out, uh, even, even post-ceremony days, post-journey days. And I, and I want to say like that, that was my original draw to it, was the fact that it could do this. Um, it is fantastic as a daily sleeping aid, which I use every single night. Uh, it's got holy basil, which is incredibly good for, for quieting the mind. It's an herb that's been known to help with quieting the mind. Blueness, uh, which is a high-end version of lemon balm extract. It's a three-to-one. There's 300 milligrams of that. 
Now, this is, this is an amazing lemon balm extract that can actually help you relax deeply before you nod off to sleep. There's L-theanine in it from sun-theanine, which is also another high-end version of L-theanine. Synapsa, Bacopa monary, uh, they take that at night. Typically, that's used with nootropics. It's something that can enhance neurochemistry, and it's also found to benefit in the evenings as well. There's amla. Amla berry has been shown to have a number of antioxidants and good things. We've got a small dose of GABA. There's five milligrams of CBD and two milligrams of CBN, and there's a half a mig of melatonin, and also KSM 66 ashwagandha, 300 milligrams of that. So another Ayurvedic and adaptogenic blend. This is perhaps the best sleep aid ever created. It is 100% natural. It will get you to knock out. You simply take it 30 to 60 minutes before bed or your desired bedtime to help quiet the mind, relax and calm the body, and fall into a deep restorative sleep that supports better recovery, clearer thinking, and more energy the next day. I absolutely love this. I wake up feeling great the next day. I do not have any grogginess whatsoever. Check it all out at Sovereignty.co. That's S-O-V-E-R. E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O and use KKP at checkout. 25% off everything in the store. And without further ado, my brother, Chris Williamson. You were fighting for a long time and that role is being tip of the spear. You will teach, probably you'll have whatever you'll do, take a class, help out some white belts, blah, blah. But really it's about you right? It's less about service. It's about yeah. you being the driving force in this thing. Uh, so Absolutely. it was interesting. Yeah. Have you found that transition from being tip of the spear to now being facilitator of the spear as a little bit different? Kind of. I mean, the, the thing is still like, I heard Chris Ryan on Rogan say that what got him to start a podcast was first, selfishly, he wanted to meet all the fucking people that he thought were the coolest people on earth, right? Like he wanted that for himself. He wanted to be homies with those people. He wanted to know them and, and be able to hit them up, you know, and just, and just build, build that connection to people one-on-one and then secondarily share that conversation with the masses. Yes. Right. And the second I heard that, I was like, that's fucking it. Cause I was on the fence, you know, Rogan said the same thing, start a podcast. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you fucking tell everyone that. And, uh, it was hearing that where I was like, oh, that's it. Like, yeah, I want to, I want, I want to keep, you know, my, my hunger for knowledge and wisdom was still there, even though fighting ended. And I wanted firsthand dibs on all that. Access. You know, I wanted to be able to access these people, learn from them. And if I had any questions that, that weren't covered in their book or their podcast, like dive deeper with them and then share that, you know? So that's still kind of the driving motivator, um, in coaching and in fit for service when I private coaching is whatever the fuck they want, you know, it's like I meet people where they're at and coach them on what they need. Um, but with fit for service, I'm kind of given because I'm one of the, one of the full-time coaches with Aubrey and Godsey and Caitlin, I can choose where I want to take people. You know, I ch- take the group like, all right, cool. We need to learn this stuff. We'll get to that. And also, this is the latest shit that I'm into yes. that I think people need to know about. Mm-hmm. And that's been great because it gives me freedom to continually renew what I'm diving into with the group as opposed to here's why you need to fast. Here's carbohydrate management. Here's how you get in shape. And just reteaching that fucking over and over again. I would, I would hate the job. If You're always the pushing your limit as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're already rolling. I hit the fucking, <laughs> I hit the start button. I was like, there's no, you always lose good shit, you know, yeah. in the conversation prior. Um, thank you for coming on, brother. My pleasure. These, these always start with, I mean, there's kind of an arc to my show in that I want to know what life was like growing up, what kind of got you to be the person that you are today. So let's start there. And then, of course, I've got a list of some uh, excellent 
excellent topics for discussion that you sent me last night, which was a fucking absolute lifesaver because it would have taken me all night and listening to your podcast to catch up and have some good talks. Um, we've got, I think, our, our same sponsorship company working with both of us and mutual friends like Aaron Alexander and different people. And you're, of course, in Austin now full time yes, from the UK, if you couldn't decipher that uh, <laughs> via the audio. But talk about life growing up. What was it like? And um, what got you into, you know, performance and, you know, aiding in success? Because your, your podcast is phenomenal. It covers a wide range of topics. People typically will choose one area like fitness or mindset or any of these things. And, you know, you've had Jordan Peterson on a couple of times. You've had some really, you know, amazing guests. And also the, the, the coverage is, is broad spectrum, which I really appreciate. Yeah, man. So uh, I'm from the northeast of the UK. Uh, a small town called Stockton, which is famous for only having the highest teen pregnancy rating in the UK. And then <laughs> recently it, it actually lost that, so it doesn't even have that title anymore, which is... They're, they're not, yeah, they lost the belt. Yeah, which is a shame. Um, so a very sort of normal working class upbringing for me, um, first person in sort of my family to go to university, went to university. So I'm an only child, which I, I think generally makes you a little bit under-socialized. Uh, I always found social connection a little bit of a difficult thing, something that I didn't quite understand, um, always sort of was on the outside a little bit as a kid. Um, got to university and started running nightclubs. So I got involved in flyering and I was like the best flyer. And then you become a junior event manager and an event manager. And within the space of a year, I'd started a franchise um, for a t-shirt bar crawl that was very successful. Me and my business partner just kept on growing and growing and growing. And that took me through basically from 18 to sort of 27, 28. Uh, and I've worked the front door of a thousand club nights. I've seen about a million people go in and out of my events. And I've been the guy in the door with the clipboard, well, the guy that owns the guy with the clipboard, making sure everything's going okay. Um, <clears throat> but very quickly, as a lot of young guys might find, um, I attached my sense of self-worth to the success of my business, right? I found something that I was good at for the first time in my life. And I started to really um, tie my sense of self to that because I thought, right, I've never really had success or adoration or acceptance or love or desire or any of that stuff previously. Uh, isolated a little bit more growing up. Uh, now I've got something. Now this is my thing. Now I can, perhaps this is the thing that's going to make people need me or want me, right? And very quickly that, it was great. I had tons of fun, right? I mean, partying and being a club promoter in your 20s and everybody in a million person city knowing who you were. I had this huge afro. So <laughs> I was like very recognizable. Um, and then I got, I, I did some reality TV. I was doing male modeling. I was DJing. Like anything that a professional fuckboy would have done was kind of the career that I went on. And then I did a big reality TV thing called Love Island in the UK. I was the first person through the doors of season one. Uh, Blue tick on Twitter, free charcoal, toothpaste on Instagram, all that, all the big winners, right? And then uh, I came out of that and I thought, is this really sort of the best that I've got to offer the world that, you know, being lean and walking about in a small pair of swim shorts on TV and getting people drunk in nightclubs? And again, don't get me wrong, it was fun and I really enjoyed and loved running my business. But there was just something that wasn't being fulfilled uh, and I got asked to be on a podcast um, by a bunch of friends and I really enjoyed the process. This was at the same time, 2016, 17, Jordan Peterson, Alanda Botton from the School of Life, your Sam Harris's, your Rogan's, really, really coming to the forefront with great content that kind of just 
helped me to make sense of the world in a way that I hadn't done previously. Uh, and I think a lot of people of my age, I'm 34, a lot of people of that age really, really found toward the back end of their 20s some content that spoke to them. And it was heavily pushed by those sorts of people. Uh, and I thought, right, well, <clears throat> this it, it's identifying a problem in me. I don't know what the problem is, but something isn't quite aligned here. Uh, so I decided to just spend a ton of time doing some self-work and some introspection and toward the beginning middle of that I started my podcast and I thought well look if I can talk to these people as much as I want to then maybe I'll expedite my growth and maybe I'll even tell other people about how to avoid the pitfalls and expedite the successes that that I've got and yeah now we're nearly 500 episodes deep and 50 million plays and yeah you're Jordan Peterson's you're Ryan Holiday's Seth Godin Robert Green James Clear uh, and that's been it, man, and that's now where my, my passion lies. So I, I spend my time learning about different interesting people and talking to them. Yeah, that's like a massive, brother. It's a cool trajectory. It kind of reminds me of Troy Casey. Troy Casey was a, he was a runway model in, um, he wrote the book Ripped at 50, which is a funny title, but he, you know, the, the, he is ripped and he's 50, but um, you know, that was really the publisher pushing him for that. He's, he's a phenomenal dude, uh, check understudy, you know, spiritual, he's definitely out there, but he's also been one of the, the, the people in health and wellness to really push back against uh, big agriculture and FDA and shit, you know, long before the last two years, just a phenomenal dude. But he talked about, you know, the, the pitfalls of his career and he was full on like slamming heroin, snorting Coke, like speedball. <laughs> All right. Like okay. In, so he's made me, he's made me look like a, a newbie. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> but, but yeah, obviously saw his way through that. Loosely, I kind of, I mean, I, I knew the guys like you at ASU, you know, playing football there. And then afterwards, when I first got into fighting and was still living in Arizona, you always wanted to know a guy like you. Like that was the dude that Good was going to have the man. fucking Useful head of the friend. line. Yep. Exactly. Like, how many, what's your guest list? Oh, I got 12 with me. Oh, 12 is too many. You know, yep. nah, no, it's not. Okay, you're in. You know, <laughs> that kind of, when you got that kind of pull, like it makes the whole situation better. First time I had to fucking wait in line. It was just, I remember Bader and I fought on the same card. In, um, I think it was 4th of July weekend. And we had some buddies that got bottle service at a club in Vegas. And it's Vegas. It's not the same thing, you know, as like your typical spot. So knowing somebody isn't always the easiest thing. But we're all in there and they wouldn't let Bader in. And I come out and I'm like, this guy fought Tito Ortiz tonight in the UFC and they didn't give a shit. You know, I was like, seriously, like, who do we have to fucking call? Yeah. And we've already paid for bottle service. Like, we're, you know, this is, this is insane. Um, Anyhow, like he, he, I just contrast those two extremes, you know, and it, it is, it is a lot of fun. And those situations, especially at that age, like I went hard to the fucking paint, you know, partying hard during that time. So it, it, it is, you're the best guy to know. Club promote sure. is a useful friend to have when you're doing that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I worked at a strip club, um, while I was fighting for, for quite a while. And, you know, as a young man, male stripper. No, no, no. <laughs> that would have paid way better. It still paid great, but a uh, bouncer, bartender, and security guard. And, um, you know, initially that was like, I never identified with that. You know, like, I'm fucking Mr. Security Guard or I'm a bartender. I could see how the identity thing would have been more as a promoter where everybody fucking wants you. Yes. But there was that, that glimmer, the shine of, man, I get to look at fucking hot naked chicks all day long. I get paid to do nothing other than just be myself, right? Like if I need to choke somebody out, I got that, you know, in spades more, more so than any other dude here. Yes. And, um, you know, but over time that, that, that glimmer goes away and it's like, oh, you start to see the underbelly. You start to see, you know, what <laughs> the grime of it, you know, like the, the, 
these horny dudes who have no chance of talking to women in real life are coming here to pay to do that. And, you know, and I'm policing whether they grab too much or not, you know, and the girls who, who, you know, maybe there's a handful that are putting themselves through school, through nursing school, through Cal Berkeley, something like that. But most of them are pretty cool with doing that the rest of their lives and like letting that sink in, you know? What does it mean that you're almost facilitating this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I genuinely believe that the stuff that we do, and we still do, you know, I'm still director of the same company, Voodoo Events in the UK, which is great. Uh, my business partner's fantastic and the team we have is fantastic and the portfolio of nights is amazing. Um, I, I genuinely believe that um, it's an important uh, learning and growing experience for young people to go out and party in that sort of a way. You know, for if you're 18 to 21 in the UK, which is our drinking age, going out as a university student or just a young person who's starting to learn about the world it's a really important uh, formative experience. Right? You need to know what it's like to lose your keys at three in the morning and be stranded in a city where you don't know anybody. Like, it's an important thing to, to <laughs> look. I don't know why it is, but it just seems to be that way. And we've facilitated, you know, some of the people that have come and worked for us have gone on to get married. Some of the guys that we, that we have as managers have gone on to become investment bankers in Singapore. They've started their own businesses. You know, we really get to shape uh, young, talented aggressively ambitious people, which in the UK is a lot rarer than it is in America, right? We don't have that mm. blue sky vision in the UK. We have tall poppy syndrome, right? If you stand up too much, you very, very, it's a very cynical, mm. very skeptical, very sort of stiff upper lip kind of uh, place, at least in the working class towns that I'm from. And uh, we facilitated some cool stuff, man. So I enjoy it. Um, but there's a, David Data talks about this in the way of Superior Man, where he says, at some point, the things which used to light a fire in you sort of no longer will. It's very strange to have something that you used to wrap your entire identity around no longer feel the sort of the same way quite so much. Uh, and then I needed something else. Uh, uh, one of the things that I often tell people that listen to my show is that I think you should really, really try and inculcate a routine of hard work when you're in your 20s, if you want to work hard, like if that's the sort of thing you want to do. Um, because I've been able to take the same thing that I did with Club Promo and I've just changed the direction that that's focused on now and now it's focused on podcasting. So I work very hard, but it's just a different outlet, right? So I've still got the same routine, the same kind Sleep's of approach. a little bit better. Dude, for the first time in my life during COVID, I had a stable sleep and wake pattern for the first time ever since I was an adult, right? I arrive at university, 18 years old, partying, and you know, you just don't have a sleep pattern there at all. And then by second year, I'm running a business that involves me staying up till three in the morning, two or three nights a week. Roll the clock forward 14 years, 13 years for the first time ever, I go to bed and wake up at the same time every day, which I'd never done before. And I was like, I thought that I always had variable levels of mood and that my sort of energy was all over the place. I was like, oh no, this is just what happens when you don't get regular sleep. And then I did, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is an entire new world. So yeah, uh, the yeah, sleep is yeah. significantly better. Emotionally now. better, yes, your processing so. power is better. Correct. Functional work, you know, the, the people are always, you know, asking me about nootropics and shit like that. And it's like, uh, this, this piece is a cornerstone. You know, Chet calls it Dr. Quiet. It's one of the four cornerstones that you must get right. Yes. There's no nootropic that can, that can fix that. Um, you know, for me, I had like two big stages where identity was kind of in the mix. Football, playing football at ASU. When that ended, I sat the bench there. So I didn't really get to finish putting my all into it. You know, and, and I left a chip on my shoulder, which I carried through me with fighting. But that was like one of the most depressing and hardest points in my life was at the end of football because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I knew I didn't have this thing. If I didn't play at ASU, 
I knew guys that started all four years and didn't go pro. So there was no chance of playing professional football. Um, and it took probably a year and a half of soul searching and, and hitting rock bottom before I found MMA and got into that. And then I clung to that thing. This is who I am. Now I get to be the athlete. Now I get to prove myself one-on-one. I don't have a coach deciding if I get to play or not tonight. Like I'm going to fight no matter what. Yep. And um, thankfully I had a boxing coach who had guided me through plant medicine journeys kind of along the way and uh, traditional sweat lodges and things like that. So when it came time to shift gears, even though I still love the sport and absolutely love fighting, I love pushing myself to the highest level where like the every every facet of me, mentally, emotionally, physically, had to be in tune and in alignment in order to perform at my best. I could let go of that and not identify with it. And because I had football as a background, I say, oh yeah, this was a period of my life and just a period. It's not something I knew I wasn't going to play my whole life. Right, yeah. And same thing with fighting. I could apply that to fighting. And the transition from fighting was relatively easy in comparison. I mean, there was no comparison. When I left fighting, it was like, cool, man, I can work at the titty bar twice a week and, and know that I'm not going to be there forever and just keep reading books and, and following my interests. And then, you know, eventually one thing leads to another. I got a podcast and, you know, come to on it. All the other ducks kind of fall in line. Was it hard for you? I mean, you still have that, but it was, it was kind of a different situation and that you're forced to pause because the world changes overnight. Talk about that transition. And, and if there was, you know, any, Anything, you know, struggles with letting go of that or any identity things that you had there? I'd already done a lot of that, I think, previously. So I was ready for that to happen in a bizarre way. Uh, and I'd already uh, done a lot of work after I'd been on that TV show and, and came out and was like, look, what's going on? Like, what, are, what am I here for? Because it, it doesn't feel like... I'd spent this six weeks in this villa, right, locked with all of these people and you've got no friends, no phone, no technology, no distraction, no books, no nothing, no contact with the outside world. And you're on TV 24 hours a day. And uh, I thought, there's something up here. And that I'd already done a ton of the self-work. So even though I you know, didn't know that a pandemic was going to shut the world down, I kind of had done a, a good bit of prep. So yeah, I'm glad that I'd already got that done. And then the other change from there until now, I mean, I guess, whatever, club promoter, reality TV star to um, like podcaster in the psychology and philosophy space isn't the most normal of trajectories but um it 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 makes sense to me at least yeah and i mean if you think about it like there there is a ton of life experience in situations like that you know like i i i I value in hindsight that my last day of work at the strip club i did a probably a concert dose 200 micrograms of lsd and I saw it from all fucking angles. Like I had so much gratitude for the entire experience and I had gratitude for the creeps that tipped the girls who tipped me because they fed my family. You know, we had, we had bear, we were living in my mom's detached garage while I was fighting in the UFC, making dog shit money. And that really was the thing. If I got hurt, you don't get paid. So I had many injuries, you know, where I had to stay out for nine months to a year and a half. And that's the thing that sustained us. You know, that's the thing that literally paid for the birth of our child and paid for, for all the food that we were putting in and, um, car seats, all that shit, you know, just little things that I'd taken for granted where I was like, wow. So it was a, it was a big, um, kind of a big flip on its head for me to, to, to see it in that way and, and really pull from it and, you know, with gratitude for that whole experience. But you do learn in, in, from all people and, and what's cool about alcohol for better or worse, you know, it's not the best drug, but it is society's drug of yes. choice is that it opens people up and, and you get a closer look at them, 
you know, from that lens. That unencumbered, you, man. You know, They're really, really unencumbered. If you yeah. want to see what people's true nature is like, put them in a nightclub at 1.30 in the morning with a couple of, a good few beers in them, you know, mm -hmm. and you get to see a lot of, a lot of very strange and interesting things come up. Hell yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into some of these topics. This is, this is phenomenal. You sent me, uh, we, we had, we had to change some, some stuff around with our podcast time, which is great because it's all on the fly anyways, but I would, I would have, I would have been up all night listening to your episodes to try to gather material for this. And you sent me some of your three minute blogs, which are fucking incredible. Uh, we'll link to these in the show notes, highly encourage, you know, the listeners, if you enjoy this conversation, check them out. They're great. They don't take up too much time, but they really, it's clear. You've put a lot of thought into the, the things that you're writing about and, and you can see that and it's very well articulated, but they're, they're a great conversation starter. So we can, we could dive right in. You were just um, hanging with Douglas Murray. who's was one of my absolute heroes. Um, I heard him on Rogan a couple of years back and the madness of crowds was one of my favorite books that came out that year. It's probably one of my favorite books still to this day because of how he really takes a deep dive into woke culture and you know, what happens in, um, a human rights movement that has validity and should be there, right? Like gay rights or anything like that. And then what happens if you don't take your foot off the gas? Yeah. What happens when you've already won, but you, you don't stop the train from moving in that direction? You know what he said on an episode to me that just completely summarizes how it works? He said, uh, you know when you've reached true equality in life, Chris, when you have to put up with the same amount of shit that everybody else does? You just think, fuck, that's it. That's it, man. You know, it's equality to deal with the shit and the bad. That's what you're aiming for, you know? It's for people to not see whatever it is that you are as anything. It's just, you're just one of us. And unfortunately, yeah, the madness of crowds kind of highlights the fact that this has become uh, weaponized, right? Yeah, yeah, he's br brilliant, brilliant dude. And the fact that he is homosexual, like that, that g gives him a lens to speak through that, you know. Oh, he's, got, he's got his gay cards to use, yeah, yeah precisely. Yeah, exactly. Like he can, he can get away with a lot more than most people. Um, what was the quote that he said, that, you know, with regarding um, regret? Because that, that to me obviously is the, is the topic of, of the blog. And, it, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. And it got me jarred. Like I, I stayed up late, you know, thinking about things like that. Yeah. So I went out to New York and me and Douglas had been friends for a long time, but never met in person. I stayed in his apartment and we went out for dinner and, and chatted and he got me starting to drink uh, Manhattans, which is just the most brutal cocktail. It's gorgeous, but it's just spirits. Anyway, I was staying up and he's telling me these stories and he's just got bottomless stories about times with Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or whoever, because he's done all of these live events. And he was telling me this story about when he was with Hitch, who's passed now. And uh, I was telling Douglas about the fact that the, there's trade-offs in life that you need to make, right? By doing a thing, you don't get to do another thing. And there's, there's pain in that. There's a, uh, an existential sort of difficulty in the fact that you know by making a decision that you close the door to the other ones. And he told me this story from Christopher Hitchens who'd said, having a similar discussion, and Hitch turned to him and he said, Douglas, in life, we must choose our regrets. And I'm, he went to the bathroom and I had to write it in my phone, like some sort of like drug addict, like sneaking his, <laughs> sneaking his like hit while he'd left off. You keep on real quick while <clears throat> he's out of exactly. my way. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I wrote that down and that was the, the topic of the Three Minute Monday newsletter that I did. And I really reflected on that. I really reflected on what he meant by, in life, we must choose our regrets. What I realized was that for a long time, I'd presumed that 
any regret that I had was due to a suboptimal decision that I'd made in life. That had I have been able to somehow make the perfect decision, I could have ameliorated the regret, right? I could have stopped the regret from happening. Therefore, regret was kind of, it was my fault. And, and had I gone back and done things differently, I could have got rid of it. But then I realized that if opportunity cost happens in life, i.e. by doing a thing, you can't do another thing, regrets are kind of unavoidable because not only do you not get to run life again to see if you actually made the right decision, you're not a rational creature in any case, and the way that the human brain works, you can choose objectively the perfect thing and yet still regret not doing the other thing. You have a choice between the bowling alley and the theme park and you choose the bowling alley and that was the one you wanted to do and that was the best one for you to do, but you can still regret not going to the theme park because that's just the way that we're wired. And I was like, okay, so that means that, that means regrets, they're not a bug, they're a feature right? They're a feature of being a limited human who only can make one decision at a time and can only do one thing at a time because we can't, we're not infinite beings. And then that made me think, well, hang on a second. If, if it means that we have to choose our regrets, what does it mean that we have to choose our regrets? Oh, maybe that means that the best way to look at decisions is given the fact that regrets are unavoidable, given the fact that there's an opportunity cost to everything that we do, when you're offered a, a, a particular choice in life, which regret can you live with? Looking at that as one of the ways, the frameworks to make your decision is a really powerful way to do it. So as a good example, for me to come out here, uh, could I have lived with the regret of not ever trying to come to Austin while I've got my podcast and I have friends that do podcasts and blah, blah, blah. That would be the regret that I couldn't live with. And that's a much easier framework to make a decision on. Which regret can you bear living with and which regret can't you bear living with? The one that you can't bear living with, that makes the decision pretty easy. So yeah, in life, we must choose our regrets. And from one sentence, man, all that opened up. Yeah, I think about that when I was thinking of opportunity costs and like, it was just, it fucking, it got me really looking through. I've made some pretty big decisions at various points, like like moving to Austin, not quite moving from the UK, but coming from California where we were in my mom's detached garage and the, the cost of living just being atrocious in the Silicon Valley, you know, knowing that I wanted a podcast when I made that decision, it was like, I don't, you know, we can't stay here. It's like 2,500 a month just for a shitty one bedroom studio in the bad part of San Jose. And so we moved to Vegas in 2017 and literally four months later, we were moving to Austin. So like, those, and that's hard for, for kids, right? Now, obviously Bear wasn't in school then. He was one, almost two. And then he turned two in Vegas so it's not like uprooting somebody from their high school friends and shit like that, but it's still moving is, a, is an event, you know? And so to do that twice in one year, I had to put a lot of trust into this. And I think back, you know, there has been thoughts around that because we had my wife's families from Vegas and we we're on the outskirts, not in the grimy part, you know, we're, we're near Red Rock and Mount Charleston where nature there is phenomenal. And I, I went to school at ASU, so I love the desert. It's always got a, a place in my heart for that. But the, the opportunity cost then is like, oh, but how did I pass this up? So there, there is, it's, it's easier when I say like, that's a no brainer because I've done well. But I do think about those things where had the other option panned out really well, you know, like even, even when I got into podcasting, I had a buddy, uh, Matt Hewitt, who's a pipeline inspector for big oil. And, you know, I'd done some work with the plants and, and been connected to Gaia, the spirit of the earth, whatever you want to call that. So on a, on a soul level or on a mental, emotional level, at least, it would have been very hard for me to wrap my head around working in big oil. That said, a pipeline inspector, if I do my job right, there is no spill. Like, that's literally what I'm there to be trained to do and to execute on. And they're paid really well. 
especially for some dude who didn't finish college and fought and made fucking peanuts fighting in the UFC, like 200, 250 grand starting. And then overtime can put you at 350, 450 grand a year. Like that, that was like, holy shit. And, um, you know, so there was that fork in the road when I went into podcasting and obviously, you know, when you know this, you start out podcasting, like there's nothing there. There's no, you know, you get an affiliate link or that you might make, you know, 300 bucks on a month or something if you're lucky. But, um, that was a tough decision. But I, I think from, you know, from my experience in plant medicines, it was easier to connect to that piece of this is what I actually want to do. And if I fail doing what I want to do, that's better than succeeding at something that I ultimately won't bring me joy. Yes. You know, and, and um, the, the straw that broke the camel's back and made it easy was I, my buddy, you know, he told me like, it's the tempting, the temptation of overtime is always there because you make so much more money when you do that. The problem is that comes at a cost as well. And if you have a family, which you do, he goes, everyone that I know, he had six friends that all had families and six out of six were divorced. And I was like, I'm fucking, <laughs> I'm out, dude. All right. Podcasting it is. You know? Dude, well, I mean, I always use this example of Eddie Hall. So yeah, yeah strength yeah, yeah. guy, right. And he, he what said, was the name of the, the strength documentary he did? Remember the name? I can't remember. I know the one you mean. So right, anyway, Jose, was, Jose linked to that in the show notes. We'll research it and get it linked anyways. It's brilliant. He was the world's strongest man in 2017, 2018, something like that, right? He beat Thor, the mountain. And um, he, I remember him in this interview and he said, if I hadn't won that year, I think I would either be dead and or divorced and or with no relationship to my kid. So what we look at when we see people that are successful, we see them in this very, very narrow band of success, right? So Eddie Hall's successful and admirable to us because he won world's strongest man. And the way that we see success in the modern world is that we don't mind the prices that he had to pay outside of that. So there's almost something romantic, uh, glorious, uh, chivalrous in a way of the fact that he was prepared to sacrifice so much for this victory. But you actually think, well, hang on a second. So he won, right? But he was 200, nearly 200 kilos at six foot three, a heart, blood pressure through the roof on God knows how many performance enhancers, uh, training so much that his relationship with his wife was going down the pan, never saw his kid. And you think, okay, do you really want to be Eddie Hall? Because you look at him and you say he's standing on stage and he's got the trophy in his hand and he's number one. You go, that's fantastic. But what's the price of being Eddie Hall? Like genuinely, what's the actual price you need to pay to be Eddie Hall. Do you want that? Do you want to be in the gym, lifting logs with no relationship to your wife, on the verge of death, with a blood pressure that's through the roof and your kid doesn't know who you are? Because that's the price of being Eddie Hall. And most people, when they look at success, they see it in this very narrow band and they don't see the other things that you have to do in order to have that. And similar to yourself, you think, okay, well, I want to provide for my family, but what's the price of me providing in this way? What's the price if I just stay at the titty bar, right? Yeah. And I'm choking people out and I'm around girls all the time and maybe sometimes I'm drunk and there's, you know, more risk and there's health and there's late nights and there's all that stuff, you know? Yeah. This you is a phenomenal segue into the next piece on Envy. Um, but I, I do want to touch on, on uh, you know, the, the thought process around Eddie Hall, because it's, it's, you know, when you talk about his kid, I was unaware of that, like that, that he had said those things in the documentary, obviously you see like how much he values his family. There's a lot of father son time and, and time with his wife. Um, but it gets me thinking about like Gary V, which is another important distinction for me. I heard him on Mark Bell's podcast back in the day. And he said, you know, the legacy 
and for him, and look, there's, this isn't me shitting on anybody. I have brought this up before in the podcast, but for Gary Vee and a lot of the type A, very successful people, what they're stating is that the thing they leave for their kids is the legacy. It's not just money, but it's the legacy that they leave behind for their kids as, as the most opportunity for them to grow, to have financial success, to be the best version of themselves. And that becomes the, the highest port, part of the ideal that means more than, say, being at a baseball game or, you know, the connection time, right? And, and it, you know, he's correct in that respect. But one of the things he said was, every, you know, if, if parenting's a baseball game, everybody's trying to win in the first three innings. Mm. You know, and he's, and he's correct in that. However, you start reading children's books, developmental psychology, it turns out the first three innings are fucking super important, super important. And you don't get that time back. I remember, um, you know, my dad who's been in town for 30 days helping us work on the farm right now. It's been awesome. And it, and it's, you know, it's been some, some <laughs> figuring out and, and resorting, you know, kind of who's in charge and, and stuff with, with bear. Um, but, you know, the, some of the most positive memories I have are when he, he would, we'd be watching the Niners in the playoffs and he'd turn it off and go throw football for us. I'd see football on, on TV, not realize how important a playoff game is as a fan. And I'd say, throw the football for me and my friends. And he'd say, okay. And he'd turn the fucking TV off and go outside and throw the football all day with us. Right. And I remember times where, you know, he would work, he had to sleep at his, at his office because we bought a house that was an hour and a half away. So I wouldn't see him for a week sometimes, right? And how hard that was as a kid. And then parents get divorced and now I see them every other weekend, right? And so thinking about things like that, like you, you, and I was 13 at the time, I wasn't three, four, five, six, right? But you don't get that time back with your kids and you can be the best version of dad in whatever way that shows up for you. You can leave them X amount of dollars or, you know, uh, all the opportunity in the world, but they don't get to have you. And there's no replacement for you, right? And so that, to me, has been the guiding force on why money isn't the sole director of what I do. And, I, and I've spoken about this, you know, on Fit for Service as well as uh, on the podcast about why I will actually make less money to be home more. You know, Dude, there's a, there's give a, your, when it comes to Gary, everyone can raise their kids the way that they want, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, I'm, Gary, Gary, you're more than welcome to do what you think is right with your children. But if you gave your kids the choice between having daddy home every weekend for the first 15 years of their life or having an extra billion dollars when they grow up, I know what I would have preferred. Like, forget the developmental side of things, just the the sheer joy of knowing what it's like to have a father that's available on tap. And yeah, I, I, I do understand that... I understand that in a world where having money and having legacy gives people a head up, if you take success in life through a very narrow domain, you can see it as what well, I'm actually doing more good for them than I would be at home. You know, we've got a nanny for that or we've got a yeah. whatever for that. And you go, well, you don't because the nanny or the carer or the au pair or whatever isn't you. The job is yours and no one can replace that. So yeah. I think, you know, I, I can't wait to be a dad whenever that happens. And, um, I can't wait to to sacrifice things for my kids. I can't wait. I feel like there's something noble in that, you know, to do something to to bear a heavy burden, even if the burden is the fact that you don't get the success that you used to have because yeah. of your kids. I yeah. think there's something noble and chivalrous in that as well. Yeah. And I think you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, like I'm doing super well this year and I'm home a lot, you yeah. know, but it's, but it's like, uh, 
that's a, that's a a firm thing that I lean back on, you know, when I turn down an opportunity to meet someone new at a party or or you know fill in the fucking blank. There's you know this from from the nightclub game, but especially now that you've elevated yourself where you're at in the podcast game, there's always something going on, and that's rad to dive headfirst into that when you're single and you're young. But when you have a wife and kids, like that game changes. Responsibility, you know, absolutely changes. You know, and that's that's something where it's it's. And even just partying, you know, like I fucking, my, my rule of thumb is if I'm out of town, like if we have a fit for service event in Sedona, you know, I will celebrate into 3 a.m., you know, on our final night with the, with the squad because it might only happen a couple times a year, you know, and then the next day, vitamin IV therapy, all the tips and biohacks to fucking Please bring me back. back to life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if I have to do that here in town, you know, I, it's not worth the mildest hangover the next day with my kids. If I show up at 80%, it's fucking not worth it. It's absolutely not worth it. Well, that's the athlete mindset that you've got, right? That's the same mindset that you had in football, the same mindset that you had in MMA. The difference is that you've now applied that. And this is what I was saying about creating habits and thought patterns and routines in your 20s that carry through the rest of life. You know, to understand that there are marginal gains in performance and that they make really, really big differences. And then just having that framework that you're going, okay, well, I applied this to performance. Then I applied that maybe to business or to learning or to whatever, starting a fucking farm. And I'm going to apply it to parenting as well. Okay. Well, we touched on, we touched on envy, you know, the topic of envy um, with uh, Eddie Hall, who just fought Thor. Yeah. I didn't get to see it. Thor I, won. I called I, that. I, I, I knew that. I called I, it too. Dude. Six eight's a big difference. Yes. You know, like in, in weightlifting is one thing, but. That kind of reach when you have that size, like Eddie's like, Eddie. I don't know what his game plan was, but it was very, very. Have you what you said? You haven't watched the. Fight. I saw clips at the end oh, of it. Dude. I didn't get to see the whole thing. I, I would highly recommend. I would happily watch a uh, breakdown of that by you. I would love to see what you think about that. And I haven't really seen any sort of good strikers or whatever go and do it. But dude, it was just it was game over. Like you saw within the first round. I don't know what Eddie was trying to do with I that. I know they both they both had training. That fight got pushed back, so they both got to train more and it's, yeah. and it's in yeah, I, I don't want to say just boxing. Boxing is the sweet science and, and fucking there are many levels to that game. Uh as Conor McGregor found out, right? Many levels to just boxing. Um but it did allow them to singularly focus on one thing. And, and that said, though, because it's, it's just boxing, like there is a clear cut advantage, clear fucking cut. You know, remember when I remember Lennox Lewis was just eating people up and it was the most boring game plan. But to a boxer, it was the most beautiful, precise game plan of how he would just jab people to death. Then the Klitschko's came along. You start to see like these really tall heavyweights take over the game. And like that's still very much applied in their contest. Reach is know? a hell of a power. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I spoke about envy, and I, I found it interesting. Um, there's this quote from Naval where he was on Tim Ferriss' show, and he's talking about the fact that envy and jealousy, interestingly, envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that doesn't feel good, right? So the rest of them, wrath and gluttony, gluttony. and sloth, all that stuff, they feel good, but envy doesn't, and it's kind of a bit of a, a strange emotion when you actually think about it. Uh, and Naval is talking about the fact that um, all of these people that I was jealous of I realized that I couldn't just take parts of their life. I couldn't just have Eddie Hall's ability to be on stage. I had to take the whole. So it wasn't like an outfit that you get to pick and choose. It's like a, a onesie, right? And you've got to strap the whole thing in. It's got little booties that you've got to put on your feet as well. And um, that really got me thinking as well, because I, I thought a lot about Tiger Woods. I learned, I don't know how familiar you are with his sort of come up story, but his father uh, would racially abuse him while he was on the golf course as a kid. 
saying these white people are never going to let you hear, calling him the N-word. And they had a, a safe word like you do during rough sex, and it was called the E-word. And throughout his entire childhood, his dad would say to him, you know, if you want it to stop, all you need to do is just say the word, just say the E-word. And he never once said it, and it was enough, was the E-word. I learned that in Ryan Holiday's book, and I th- that really, really stuck with me. And I thought, well, what does it mean to be Tiger Woods, potentially one of the best golfers of all time? Like, well... It means that you've had to spend your childhood being racially abused by your own dad. Now, with the uh, perspective that we have of Tiger becoming this amazing golfer, you can actually say, well, maybe something that's kind of verges on what might be accused of being child abuse or at least sort of neglect. Uh, it, It kind of makes sense because you start to see some sort of a game plan. But you ask yourself, would you rather be a normal person when you grow up, because Tiger certainly hasn't been. He's had, you know, the most public marriage failure that anyone's ever seen. His wife's chasing him down the driveway with a golf club. (laughs) He's spent half a decade out of the sport with injuries from how hard he's pushed himself in training. He's fallen asleep at the wheel and broken both of his legs. He was pulled over on the side of the road. He had um, antipsychotics in his system, which I don't think he was supposed to be driving on and blah, blah, blah. You think like, that's the price that you have to pay to be Tiger Woods. Like, do you want to pay that price? I don't think that most people realize that the, the externalities, you don't just get to be successful. The fire that burns inside of them that causes them to be able to move that quickly, it burns everything else as well. And you can't just switch it on and switch it off. Same with Gary Vee, the same with pick whoever it is that you want. Elon Musk, you know, every unbelievable talent, like, you know, one of the most sort of innovative thinkers of the last hundred years that we've had on this planet. But you don't know what his relationship with his father's like. You don't know what the, the landscape of his mind's like when he goes to sleep on a nighttime. Maybe the guy hasn't had an erection in months, you know? Those are some of the potential prices that you might have to pay to be Elon Musk. And I think that this, to me, just makes jealousy kind of a bit of a pointless emotion. Unless you get to see absolutely everything of somebody, most of the people that you admire, you wouldn't pay the price that you need to pay in order to be them. And that is the most liberating thing to think. You look at somebody and you can see elements of them that you think, wow, that thing is cool. I really like the way that uh, Kyle is confident in groups of people. I really like the way that Aubrey is able to speak on a stage. I really like the whatever, whatever, right? But it doesn't mean that you want to be them because you don't know what the price is that those people have had to pay in order to get there. Yeah. And that was a real interesting insight for Yeah, me. that's massive. And I think speaking of that too, you know, like the, the for, for, I think for people that are actually doing something and, you know, and, and, in charge of their faculties from a health and wellness standpoint to their direction in life. And you're doing your vocation. It's not just a job that gets you by, um, which is fine too. Like the check always talks about the, the, the shadow side of the prostitute archetype is doing the same thing over and over again, just for the money with no end in sight. The light side of the, of the prostitute archetype is I will do this thing that I don't like to make a certain amount of money while putting some aside to actually start the business that I do want to do or, or, or be in the situation that I, that I want to be in. So there's a light side and a dark side to that. But um, the idea that people, and, and, it, and it is, it's not something that, that I think about often, but there are a lot of people that do envy stars or, or someone that's on TV or any of that, and fucking, you know, reality TV. Like you get that, right? Yep. That to me, it, it's beautiful in the way you wrote this because you are painting a picture of like what this actually looks like is different than you think it is. But even at its core, the idea that you would see someone else and say, like, I want that person for myself. I want to be that person. I want to be with this person. There's something off in the centering meter 
of where they're at to even want that. Like what you're speaking about with Aubrey's ability to speak on stage or any of these other qualities, like admirable qualities, fuck yeah. Take all those. That's that's the piecing together, the forming of, of the inner Voltron yes. that you're going to claim for yourself, you know, what you aspire to be in the best version of yourself. It's why you do the self-work so you can have all of these different qualities that you admire in other people. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But the... The, the, the gross version of that where it's like, oh man, like the worship, the fanaticism over certain people or ballplayers or fill in the blank, um, entertainers, like that shows me that something's off center with that person to begin with. And unfortunately, th- that's probably the majority of the general population. It's why, you know, tabloids do so well. It's why fucking the 30 minute entertainment catch up show does so well late night, you know, or daytime, whatever the fuck it's on these days. Um, it's a low resolution view of the world, I think, which yeah. is why you look at somebody and you see them as like a single being as opposed to all of these different modular parts. You look at the world and you want a simple explanation as opposed to seeing it as a million billion competing tiny little uh, effects that are smashing up against each other. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I think you've seen podcasting and, and, and things like Substack as well that give people the opportunity to really, really sink into the nuance or the subtlety about why something is the way that it is. And you don't see that with uh, with a 30-minute segment split up into three-minute bits in between all of the adverts, which you guys seem to love here in America. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I mean, so Jordan Peterson, who was on the show, he spoke about this. I can give you the link to put in the show notes. If anyone oh, yeah. wants to check out this episode, it's the, the best thing that I've done that explains this jealousy thing, and it'll be in the show notes below. And um, yeah, man, he, he agreed the same thing, you know, to do with to do with Tiger Woods. Like, you don't know the price that you need to pay to be the people that you admire. And most of the time, you wouldn't pay that price. And just remembering that, it helped, really, really helped me with jealousy and with envy. Um, especially on the come up, especially if you're a, a, an aspirational young person, especially a young guy. You know, you're looking for those archetypes. You're looking for those people that have trailblazed and paved the path. You go, dude, that's an awesome path, awesome path to walk behind. But it doesn't mean that you have to follow it the entire way or that you have to look at that person as the only way to find the solution because what that does is it's a disservice to what your unique makeup is for yourself. So let's say that you try to be Aubrey Marcus or something like that. You go, well, hang on a second. What have I got that Aubrey didn't? Because our backgrounds are different and our proclivities are different and our predispositions are different. So maybe there's a way that I can actually do what he did my way, which is even better for me and maybe I'm selling myself short. Uh, and this is where the, the subtlety is, right? This is the interesting thing. This is the game of life. How can I take what people have done that's been done well and make it more useful to me and improve on it for myself? That's, that's the game. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Fuck yeah, brother. Let's talk uh, a bit about, and we've already, we've already touched on this as well, but a bit about success versus happiness. You know, you, you brought this up early on in our conversation about the success that you had had and being an only child and coming from the area that you had and, and um, what is it? The tallest poppy syndrome? Yes. Tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy yeah. syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, break that down because a lot of people think, you know, more and more, if you're listening to either one of our podcasts, I think you can differentiate between like someone else's idea of success and like what it means for you to be successful. And that, that, that is a key distinction because through programming, we have that just fucking layered and layered and layered on top of us from how we're steered into whatever profession we're going to do. And for some that's, that's, you know, far more the case, like, Hey, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, no matter what you might have parents like that. Or 
It might not have been that strict, but you could have been steered away from doing something you actually love. Like my wife studied art in college and mom said, you're not going to make any money doing that. And so she gave that up. Now she loves doing art, but you know, that, that did steer her. We're all affected through parenting, society, teachers, uh, you know, what do they call those? Those uh, you might not have them in the UK, but like a, a counselor in, yes. uh, in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they tell you what you're going to fucking be. Stop good at. trying to be a fucking UFC fighter. <laughs> yeah. You're never going to make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the interesting things I realized about success is this dude who's on the come up called Alex Hormozzi. So he um, just a business dude who's come out of nowhere and his content's really great. He did this post and it, it got me thinking about the um, relationship between success and happiness and what I realized was that a lot of the time on people presumably are chasing success because they presume that it's going to make them happy. In the pursuit of what we want, happiness, we sacrifice the thing we want, happiness, for the thing that's supposed to get it, success. You go, hang on a second. You're telling me that I'm making myself miserable in the moment in order to achieve a thing that's supposed to make me not miserable in future. There has to be a shortcut to this. There has to be a way for me to be able to just cut myself through. And one of the most common dynamics that I see with high performers is, you know, as a young guy or girl, maybe their parents give them praise that's contingent on them doing well. It's very, very typical, right? You reinforce the thing you want to have happen and you punish the thing you don't. But this can kind of, especially if you're a high performance parent or you've got a kid that you want to do well, this can become a little bit more sort of malignant, right? You can really, really push this a little bit much. And what that teaches children is that their uh, praise and adoration is worthy when they do well. You grow up a little bit and this starts to tell you, well, maybe the world only loves me or needs me or wants me or maybe I'm only worthy of being liked or accepted by people if I'm successful. This Aubrey dealt quite a and has been very open about that, how that was very much uh, an issue for him. And it actually resurfaced recently when he joined a basketball league because that, all those emotions came back up. You know, I must I mean, perform. I must yeah, do well. Yeah, and, and uh, I think the example that he gave was, and he's spoken about this on a podcast, so it's not it's not like I'm spilling the beans here on private shit, but um, they would celebrate in the car on the ride home from the game with music and fucking parents. fun. Yeah, the parents, the whole family, right? Everybody would be cheering and listening to music and you know dancing in the car. And then after a loss or a bad game, silence. Right. So like you you think about how that would fucking impact. What are you being taught? A young teen, you know. Yeah, man. It's a big, big fucking deal. Like that. I was like, damn, dude, that hit me hard. Dude, well, I mean, that. you know, he, he was the other thing as well that these people that have that upbringing are driven to do wonderful things, you know, magnificent, terrifying achievements. Because a fear of insufficiency can take you a long way, right? Like, I would say, one of the main reasons that people that are successful are so successful is because they're running away from a life that they fear, not just running toward a life that they want. And you have to think, well, again, what's the price that you're paying for that? Like, is success worth it if you're miserable in the process of chasing it down? What, 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 why not just shortcut all of this and just be happy? Is that even possible? And the, 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 is that even possible was something that I really think about. And this is where the really, really taking detailed view is important, right? Because you could quite easily say, well, okay, so I just become an ascetic monk and I live in the woods and I recant all worldly possessions. And you go, well, that's not going to work either because you're not realizing that we have an innate desire for prestige and status. And we want to feel like we're, you know, we belong and like other people respect us for the work that we do. So it's too simple to just say, right, forget any success 
just become an ascetic and, and go down that road. That's not going to work. So I think that there is a degree of real-world success that we need to chase down. I think that it's important to do the things, right? Naval Ravikant says, it is far easier to achieve your material desires than to renounce them. Like, it's much easier to drive a beat-up truck if you've had a nice car previously, as opposed to always having that open look of, I wonder what it's like to have yeah. a nice car, I wonder what it's like to have a nice car. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about success, like, you're sacrificing the thing you want, happiness, for the thing that's supposed to get it, success. Uh, how is that not ass backward? And and again, that doesn't mean that you don't have to chase success. That doesn't mean that success chasing is a bad idea. Like I'm doing it every single day. But my point is just consider maybe with a little bit more subtlety and nuance just what you're trying to get out of this situation and whether there's a quicker route towards trying to get it. You know, can you, what is it that's driving you here? Is it the patterns perhaps that you were taught when you were a kid that said praise and love is contingent on success? And now rolling that forward, you are terrified that the world doesn't... I, I saw this, this was definitely a pattern with me, that I'd never had a friend group um, throughout school, very sort of under-socialized, very different. I'd sound different to the um, area that I'm from and so on and so forth. And then I got to uni and I was this successful club promoter that everybody needed. I thought, wow, this is what it's like to, to be needed. This is why... And I'd always wondered, like, why is it that other people have friends and I don't have friends? I thought, well, I, must, I must be missing something. And I would look at the kids and I would think, maybe it's because of the way that he does his laces. Or maybe it's because of the way that he has his tie. So I was trying to figure out, what is it that they have that I don't have? And I didn't realize that it was just, like, social nous, mostly, right? Like, it was just an ability to socialize with other people. And uh, the 5% autism that's probably sprinkled on me, probably didn't help. <laughs> and um, I, I remember I got to uni and I was like, oh, wow, like this is how you do it. And that was another lesson that it taught me. And I'm 18, 19 when I learned this. And that's still inculcated into me. If you are useful to other people, that makes them need you. That makes them want you. And that's nearly as good as them wanting to want you. And you think, oh, fuck, right, okay. So I've got to get rid of that lesson as well. Like, how do I learn that I'm just enough, that I'm worthy of love and acceptance and friendship and belonging just because. I don't need to offer people gifts. I don't need to add value to people's lives. And I see this even now with the show. It's metastasized into the show. Well, maybe if I offer people interesting insights <laughs> about their life or if I can tell them a cool story about a about a study that illuminates something that they weren't thinking about, or if I can write an interesting blog post, maybe then they'll need me. You think, oh, God, it's everywhere. And you just try and slowly chip away. You try to slowly erode that desire to the point. And it's, I'm significantly better now that I go, okay, like, I, I, I can do this because I want to do this. I can add value because I want to add value, not because I have a fear that if I don't do that, I don't belong. And yeah. that's a, a dynamic I see with a lot of people. Yeah, what is the driver? I think about that too with, with um, you know, in success versus happiness, like time versus money. Tim Ferriss brought that up in 4-Hour Workweek, you know, this, this teeter-totter of, you know, you to make more money. Paul Check talks about this a lot. He's got a great, we'll link to this uh, solo cast I was telling you about in the car that he just did on, on um, you know, accomplishing your dreams, you know, goal attainment. What does that look like? A lot of the stuff from PPS Mastery on the Czech Institute, but you know, you, you increase, you, you sacrifice time to increase wealth 
because you know wealth gives you all the things that you need for happiness and wealth brings success, right? So you're making a lot of money, you're successful by most people's measuring stick, right? But you don't have time and you could, you could skew that to a point where you literally don't have time to spend the money that you make, you know? And then you think about the cost, even if you're a single guy and you don't have a wife or kids or anything else going on, you wouldn't have time to go celebrate at the club. You wouldn't have time to do fucking anything to just to unload, you know, let alone to, right? So, so there, if you, if, when you look things, I like looking at things, it, you know, if it, if it, if it toggles, it doesn't have to be the extreme. Obviously we see that in fucking politics, but as a thought experiment, take it to the extreme and then reverse it and take it to the other extreme and then find that meter yes. to balance yourself with that. And then, you know, to speaking to what your point is on, can I shortcut that now? Can I have the happiness now? What are the things that bring you joy? Why wait for that? why not fucking set aside time to have it right now? You know, like, why not say like, I, I, I want to play music with my kids at the house. So I'm going to buy some extra instruments and we can just fuck off and play handpan or a drum or whatever during the day and actually take time off from work. So I'm, you know, right now I might work four, five hours a day on any given day. Some days I have to grind and I'm, you know, sun up to sundown on the farm or whatever else. So I got, you know, three podcasts in a day, whatever the case is, there's some days like that. But for the most part, I work four or five hours a day and I do that. So that way I can be home doing the thing that brings me joy. You know, like I can have that right now. It doesn't have to be when I retire. It doesn't have to be. And then I don't have to fucking retire. Right. So there's no, I'll be happy when I can fill the cup right now. And I think thankfully more and more people are realizing that whatever that is for them, you know, and I think that's, that's the draw towards self-improvement or, uh, you know, podcasts that actually inform you on like little hacks that get you to rethink and reframe kind of, kind of the programming that we've had growing up versus like, what is an authentic yes for me? And how does that look? Peterson said this again, that, that same episode that's going to be linked below, he nailed it, absolutely nailed it with this bit. And he said, um, the single biggest predictor of wealth is age. Would you rather be young and poor or old and rich? Because you can't buy youth. Fuck. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, dude, that's it. Would you rather be young and poor or old and rich? You can't buy youth. And wealth is, this, is the single best predictor of it is age. So you go, okay. Like we're sacrificing the thing that everybody wants for the thing that's supposed to get it. And you just go, oh, man. So ass backward. And yet I do think, at least in the circles that I move in, more and more people taking a, a, a significantly more holistic view of, success of work-life balance of where they take their values from of how they add to the world do one thing i've noticed since i've been out here in austin i've been made to feel incredibly welcomed by you know yourself and aubrey and michael casu and millions of people so many so many so many people and it really does feel like austin is a city where it's cool to work hard and very uncool to work very hard and that's a very unique situation to be in because it's not the same in New York. If, if somebody came in and said, dude, I did a 60-hour week this week, they go, why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Have you not, did you not, what about paddleboarding? Did you not forget about, did you, where did the pickleball go? <laughs> um, and I, I really like that because it's like a, um, it's a external reminder. It's a forcing function. It's a constraint. There's so much stuff going on and there's so many people that are behaving in ways that are more, rounded, more holistic, more organic, that you can't, you, you have too many other options to keep you working and you have too many people that are telling you that you probably shouldn't work to keep you working. And it's so, that, that's the first time, the relationship between 
leisure and work. This might be in America across the board, I don't know, but certainly in Austin is the best that I've ever found. In the UK, we have a Puritan work ethic, right? So you can imagine these uh, priests in the Middle Ages and they're working outside of the chapel and they're hoeing the ground and they're in their, their, their robes and they're hoeing the ground and the sun's beating down on their back and they're doing it in service to God, right? That's a Puritan work ethic, puritanical. And it's the, the, the suffering and the pain and the discomfort is the service to God. And in the UK, that's very much the way that sort of people's work ethic is that it's still got this very sort of um, hard, I must work in order to reward myself that I can get out the other side of this. And yet over here you go, hey man, what are you doing in the morning? Why don't we go, why, why don't we go jump in the lake? Or why don't we go and, you know, do this thing? Do I deserve it? Well, it's life. This is life. You don't need to deserve life. Yeah. That reminds me of um, Matthias De Stefano. He has a show called Initiation on Gaia. Here's a couple other ones. Um, fantastic dude. Uh, Aubrey's become friends with him. So I've been able to pick his brain here behind closed doors a few times. And he's, he's just a fantastic dude. But one of the things he talked about from a, from a world religion standpoint, if you looked at Judeo-Christian religions, they all started where? In the desert. You know, where like the sun beats your ass. Where, you know, one drought means you don't get to eat or there's a lack of water. Like, and so don't piss God off. God is wrathful, right? Versus uh, the spiritual cultures we have from the Amazon, we're like, everything is plentiful. I don't need to grow shit. It's already here for me. I can get whatever I want. I might keep a few chickens, but I can fish for what I need for food. I can go grab, you know, I know where this tree is and where that tree is to get the fruit that I need. And, it, and it's, you know, you're in the bounty, right? There's, there's anacondas and jaguars and shit and fucking giant mosquitoes. So it's not all hunky dory, but the, the difference in the viewpoint, and then obviously the plant medicines that are abundant there that connect them um, to direct experience with source. Like those are two completely different experiences and how that goes out into the world, into the psychology of man varies fucking greatly. You know, it absolutely does. And I think, you know, when Tim was pointing to, you know, with, with the four hour work week, like the, the idea, you know, I think the, it's the, the fisherman where the, the guy from the West is like, Hey man, if you take out a loan, you can get a bigger boat and then you can do the seven days a week. And then he's like, well, what do I do when I retire? He's like, well, then you could spend time with your family all day. Like you basically do what you're doing all day now, instead of fishing for hundreds of thousands of people, you just fish for yourself and your family. And, it, and it's comical to think of that, but that story is, is really the difference in the thinking between you know, the, the, the harder nosed growing up in the desert versus, you know, the spirituality birth where it's plentiful. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I want to, um, and we're right at the hour mark. I want to dive into something, you know, the, the final blog that I was reading on something I hadn't heard of before. So I was like, Ooh, juicy. This is interesting. Um, I've heard of imposter syndrome, but I had not heard of imposter adaptation. Can you break that down for us? Yes. So this was something that I bro-scienced into existence. Uh, and what I realized was that everybody's familiar with imposter syndrome, right? That you don't feel like you are worthy of your accomplishments and that you are playing a role that you're not actually um, qualified to play. And everybody's familiar with hedonic adaptation, which is that when good things and bad things happen to you, life tends to reset back to the, similar, the same sort of level of happiness. There's studies around people that uh, become paralyzed and people that win the lottery after 18 months, their happiness levels pretty much reset back to the same. So we're very resilient. One interesting lesson about hedonic adaptation is that we're way more resilient to trauma than we think that we are. 
right? Yes, we're also resilient to happiness, which kind of sucks, but you're resilient to trauma. So something bad happens to you in 18 months, statistics say that you're going to be better before then or at then, right? So that, that's an interesting thing. What I realized was that um, imposter adaptation is kind of this real nefarious version of imposter syndrome that I found in myself uh, where as you continue to disprove your own imposter syndrome in the real world, your standards for which you're measuring yourself against continue to move forward. So your imposter syndrome adapts to your ever-increasing capability. And I think a lot of people see this as well, that there's a kernel of truth in the fact that, well, I haven't done this size presentation before. Well, I haven't played in front of this many people at my live band before. Well, I haven't um, tried to pitch for this size of a contract before. So you go, okay, yeah, but think about all of the challenges that you've come up against, all of the things, all of the difficulties, and you won. And you still have imposter syndrome. How many times do you need to disprove your imposter syndrome in the real world and the imposter syndrome persist until you actually admit to yourself, this has got nothing to do with my capabilities and everything to do with an addiction to feeling like an imposter. More capability isn't going to fix this problem, right? I keep on coming up against a challenge in the real world. I keep on being victorious. I keep on coming up against it. I keep on being, being victorious. And yet I never have faith that I'm going to do it again. And I, this was something that I found with myself because over time I actually started to notice it drop away. You know, I'd sit down and do a podcast and be sure that it would go terribly and it wouldn't. And then I'd sit down and do a podcast. And then 460 episodes later, I'm like, okay, I, I, I kind of guess that reality is telling me something here, which is maybe I shouldn't be scared that I'm not going to do well. And you go, okay, so what does that mean? It means that for a long time, I was lagging behind my view of myself, even though reality was telling me something different. And that's the imposter adaptation. And I think that people just need to try and have a little bit more faith in the work that they do. Like if you are adamant that you're going to fail and reality continues to tell you that you're succeeding because every time you come up against something, it goes great. Like, why are you listening to yourself? Reality is telling you the, the truth here. You keep on winning every single time that something bad or something challenging or something difficult occurs. Like, believe in that. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I, that, that caused a lot of reflection too, especially in podcasting where I've had like, uh, and, it, and it's not um, a frequent thing. It's typically if I have a giant guest, you know, I'll talk to my closest friends or my wife and I'll be like, oh man, I, I could have been better. You know, there's no grading. There's no inner critic like in our conversation or anything like that. And it's fantastic by the way, but like, there's no inner critic there. When I, when I, you know, if I'm talking to somebody that I've, that I've been studying or read their fucking books, I'm like, I got to get such and such on. Like it could have happened. It might've happened with like Douglas Murray, right? Like, who, were you, who were you most nervous to have on that you've had on so far? Um, well, I was nervous, not for the, I was slightly nervous for the first Rogan, but I didn't understand the weight of it. The second time I went on Rogan's, I was fucking mortified. <laughs> Right. And I remember calling Aubrey right after and I was like, it fucking went terrible, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, dude, I was on 12 times. There was times where I thought it was terrible. And, you know, the feedback wasn't that it was terrible, it was that it was fine or whatever, you know, and like, I, I felt like I wasn't speaking that much, you know, and then somebody would say like, no, it just seemed like he had a lot to say and you spoke less, but that happens sometimes in a conversation, you know, so shit like that. Um, I'm totally drawing a blank on the name of the guy right now but he's uh, a brilliant thinker also from the uk uh lives out in la and um i just had so much admiration for this guy it's not peter crone yeah peter crone 
<laughs> yes, yes. Reading minds here. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I remember when I first got turned on to Peter Crone, it was like discovering Eckhart Tolle for the first time. Kind of like that. Serious like, motherfucker. Holy yeah. shit, dude. This guy exists. How does how do I how do I not know who the fuck Peter Crone is, right? Like he's fucking brilliant, yeah. you know? And um and it also helped or hurt that I was in his house and his house is fucking phenomenal. Unbelievable, you know? yeah. Like, Holy shit. You know, and he comes down and his assistant's like, oh, he'll be down in a minute. He's in his hyperbaric chamber. And I'm like, of course he's got his own, <laughs> of course he's got his own hyperbaric chamber. Um, but I remember just like, uh, you know, I've been hitting the head a lot. So sometimes I do forget like the trail of thought. And then thankfully I've got guests that can fucking piece me back and I keep rolling with a thread. But with him, it was just, I hung on every word. You know, like I was learning so much as he was speaking that I, there was nobody driving the fucking boat. Yeah. Like there was no one behind the wheel. It was just like, yeah. holy shit, I need to take notes and fucking and listen to this the second it's over with kind of feeling. And so, you know, really the, the line of questioning was very hard to fucking keep, you know, where's the next thing going to go? How am I going to put this together? Um, so that probably of all the podcasts that I've done was the one where I was most self-critical. And it was still fucking great because Peter was fucking Peter. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So like, even at the end of the day, if, if, if on a, could I have been better? Fuck yeah. You know, but like, am I going back to the selfish thing? Am I buddies with Peter now? Yeah, man. Yeah. I fucking, fucking texted him a bunch in the last two years, like here and there, like, dude, when you come in Austin, all this shit, you know, like he's a homie. And so like the, the ultimate goals of having a podcast to become friends with the guy that I admire, to learn from that person, the guy or girl. Those are all achieves. And the fans fucking, you know, everyone listening loved the fucking podcast. So like there's remember, no... Remember as well, like, uh, I think we have a view of ourselves that was supposed to be the finished article or was supposed to be kind of rounded and, and without error. And let's say that you do do a thing where you, you're you speechless after something that Peter says. Like, who's to say that that's not the way to deal with this? You know, the old version of the world where everybody had to wear a suit and tie and turn up on time and nobody could swear and blah, 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 blah. That, that kind of world is starting to disappear a lot now. And it's a lot more of a real, open, vulnerable way to do something. So you have a conversation with Peter and you're just like, dude, I, I don't know what to say. And you go, that's also charming, you know? We, we don't expect people to be perfect in that way anymore. We actually want to see the speechless Kyle on the show. Like, that's a part of it. Yeah, that's it's a, an authentic reaction. The, you right? know, it's not. You see uh, Peterson crying on a on a podcast or something like that, and you go, "Well, that's a part of it as well." It doesn't make it any less. In fact, it makes it more. You know, people aren't here, and this is for anybody that that is trying to start a podcast. One of the most interesting things I've learned is your job isn't to be the perfect disseminator of information, perfectly indexed in like a rational framework. You're a vibe architect right? You're trying to just create a vibe around the conversation. The information is going to come in any case, right? People aren't, unless you're a, sort of a super bro-y, chicky podcast talking about like who I slept with last night and what's your favorite burrito and stuff. Like for the most part, you're already going to get the information out. So it's like, how do you create the, the vibe, the atmosphere that makes people feel like they're a part of it? And that's a part of it as well. Forgetting whatever it is that you were talking about because you're entranced by this fantastic guy and his wisdom. You go, well, that's a part of it too. So yeah, I think letting go of that desire to be perfect is a is a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Well, it's been fucking excellent doing our first run. I know we'll do this again. Um, you got a book coming out? Can we talk about that? Or that's no? that's not um, 
not been signed off yet. That's a potential okay. uh, for the future. Um, for now, if people want to listen to the show, Modern Wisdom, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever else you listen. Uh, Chris Williamson on YouTube. We've got whatever, 350,000 subs on there, so you can find me there. If you want to get started, the first episode that I would advise is Jordan Peterson's one, which we'll throw in the show notes. And then um, I've got a list of 100 fr- books that you should read before you die. So it's a free reading list. Just people always ask, what, what should I start with? Uh, and that's Chris Will X dot com slash books you can get that for free awesome brother thank you so much my pleasure man